So I wonder, where do you turn when the bottom falls out? When life is crumbling? When it feels like the walls are just caving in? When hope fades like the last rays of the setting sun and all that's left is darkness and despair? You know, some of us, and this might be my temptation, some of us are tempted to to flip that switch of just stoic resignation, right? We stiffen our backs and we press on. We don't dwell on it. We don't analyze it, right? What's the use of agonizing over something we don't think we can finally affect? And so we accept our lot with a kind of dispassionate resignation, And we just resolve to trudge on. Yet others of us, we don't stiffen, but we instead begin to wither. And we begin to fold. Right? The weight becomes too heavy. The burden too great. Every day presses upon us and further squeezes the life out of us. And it feels as if we can't catch our breath. And that we can't find any rest. And so we begin to wonder, is life even worth living? Death begins to feel like the only form of escape. Friend, how do you keep on living when it seems like all hope for living is gone? Have you ever reached that point? Maybe you feel like you're even approaching that point this morning. And if so, the good news, in fact, is that you're not alone. Actually, not alone. Let me me invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seat back before you, you can find 2 Corinthians 1 on page 964. Page 964. And last week, we saw that the Corinthians prized much of what we today prize in leaders, right? Strength and wisdom, self-sufficiency, charismatic personalities. They wanted as well the same in their own spiritual leaders. They wanted some combination of like stage actor meets business actor meets life coach, right? All wrapped into one. So when the Apostle Paul comes, and he comes to them without all of the soaring rhetoric, when his demeanor is in fact marked by weakness, and his life is just dominated by affliction, they can't get their heads around it. They can't understand it. And last week we saw that for Paul, in fact, his very affliction that they felt undermined the authority of his message, was in fact the grand mark, the true mark of his apostolic message. It was the authenticating mark of that very message. So not only do Paul's afflictions confirm his ministry, but actually he says they're given to him for the purpose of comforting them in their faith. But friends, what kind of afflictions did Paul suffer? Does he just speak of it broadly? Broad afflictions, the kind of afflictions that, you know, might, might mark a week in our lives and we move on and never remember them again. Was, was Paul's life rather sunny, happy, 
How did Paul press on when the dark clouds of despair gathered around him and when his own burdens mounted? And friends, what what did Paul's life, what is his example, what does his fight teach us about how to fight in such moments? Let's listen to Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf, For the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Well, friends, here we come to one of the most sort of raw and guttural depictions of despair we have actually in the scriptures. You know, it's easy to think that biblical characters like Paul are unlike us. We're prone to to put them up on pedestals. We're, We're prone to think of them maybe even as superheroes. Right? They're immune to the dark night that is the soul. They somehow transcend the despondency and the misery that accompanies us mere mortals. Yet here we see that Paul, friends, Paul was no superhero. But nor was Paul a stoic. He was a man whose suffering brought him to the end of himself. Who despaired even of life itself. So how do we survive those dark nights of the soul? How do we keep from that stoic resignation on the one hand? And on the other hand, how do we keep ourselves from just sort of giving up, giving in, and cashing in the chips on the other? I think Paul's going to help us by noting three things. We must first know something, do something, and be something. So that's going to be a pretty simple outline, right? We've got to first know something, do something, and be something. So let's think about these things together. First, we must know something. First, we must know something. Friends, what does Paul want us to know? I think we see right there in those opening verses. What does Paul want us to know? Paul wants us to know pain is real. Pain is real. Paul is jarringly honest about the sufferings and afflictions he faces. You know, remember the Corinthians? They can be a lot like us, right? In choosing God and picking sides with with the divine, right? And picking sides with the God who would conquer death. The Corinthians expected their lot to improve. They expected that with this God, their life would start to look up. And they were tempted to think with this God, they get a kind of get out of jail free card. Many of us, right, we can think similarly. Right? After all, what's the point of religion if it doesn't repay in some way? That's how many of us think. Yet here is Paul, that we in verse 8, 
Well, that's just picking up the same we of verses 3 to 7, right? The epistolary we, that's where Paul's referring to himself here in the first person plural because it has a way of taking the attention and focus off of him and it has a way of generalizing the experiences for all Christians. And he's returning again in verse 8 to these afflictions that he mentioned back up in verse 4 and verse 6. But now he opens up his heart and he reveals more. He reveals these afflictions. Verse 8, they leave him what? They leave him utterly burdened beyond strength. You know, that image of, of burdened there, that word, it's of a ship that's overloaded with cargo, kind of sinking and taking on water. Or it's of a pack animal that is weighed down so heavily that it just pitifully falls in exhaustion and can't get back up. These afflictions, Paul says, they have left him spent. They have left him utterly exhausted, right? Like a recreational runner who has no business in a marathon, but he's in a marathon, and he's in the 20th mile, and he's at elevation in the Rockies, and he's got a weighted vest, right? That kind of exhaustion. Or a mother in her 30th hour of labor, utterly exhausted. Such afflictions, Paul says, burdened, completely overwhelmed. Such that, verse 8, what he, he despairs of life itself. That word for despair, it's a rare one. It, it speaks of, of being distraught, of being shattered, of being overcome. It's actually used only one time in the Greek Old Testament. And it's used in Psalm 88. Psalm 88. I don't know if you're familiar with Psalm 88, but it is the darkest psalm in all of the Bible. You could say it's one of the darkest chapters in all of the Bible. It's the one psalm that ends without a hint of hope. There the psalmist speaks, Psalm 88, verse 15. And he says that he's afflicted and close to death. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless, distraught. There's our word right there for despairing, distraught, despairing. Your wrath, the psalmist says of God, has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Darkness is my only friend. And that's how the psalm ends. Friends, I think Paul's rare choice of this unusual word may be an intentional allusion to Psalm 88. He's linking perhaps his own dreadful experience, his own dark days of the soul with the dark days of the psalmist. Utterly destitute, beaten down, destroyed, right, without a hint of hope. So when Paul says that he despairs even of life itself, he may simply be saying that he's fearing he's about to die. But friends, that language can also be translated, as does uh, like the New English translation, the NET. We despaired even of living. We despaired even of living. As in the despair had become so great for Paul that he welcomed death. That he may have even wished for death, right? I can't do it anymore. Take me. It left him, verse 9, feeling as if, what, he had received the sentence of death. 
Which begs the questions, what kind of afflictions is Paul referencing here? Some say they were psychological afflictions. Maybe his distress over the state of the Corinthian church. But, you know, when when you speak of afflictions occurring in Asia, in a particular place, and by that he doesn't mean the continent like we refer to Asia. He means the, the Roman province, sort of western Turkey, right where Ephesus was. When he speaks of his afflictions there in Asia... It's odd to highlight a geographical place if you're just speaking of your own internal sufferings. And the sense that it's more than that, it's something physical, something that represented, I think, a real threat to his own life. You know, others would say it wasn't psychological, it was more a physical illness maybe. But, you know, affliction isn't the normal word the Bible uses for illness. And it's hard to see how Paul's illnesses would help him share in the sufferings of Christ, verse 5. And that these sufferings are what the Corinthians were to share with him. I think that's a little harder to understand. You know, others say these afflictions were some kind of severe persecution. Maybe it was mob violence. Maybe it was a kind of imprisonment. You know, perhaps it was the riot in Ephesus. If you know the story in Acts 19. But if that's the case, Paul doesn't say Ephesus. He just says Asia. Elsewhere, when he refers to problems in Ephesus, he says Ephesus. And we don't read of any dire physical harm coming to Paul in Acts 19. You know, maybe it's the imprisonment Paul mentions, if you, if you know Philippians 1. Though the tenor of Paul here and there is very different. Maybe it's the Jewish, some Jewish opposition that we know Paul increasingly faced. Friends, at the end of the day, we actually don't know specifically what afflictions Paul here faced. I think it's more likely it's some violent opposition of some kind, some weighty threat that had Paul at wit's ends. But, you know, I wonder if it's left out on purpose. You know, Paul is not Instagramming about it. You know, Paul's not looking at his life and starting a GoFundMe page with pictures and blogging, right? He's not doing that. Because finally, for Paul, the issue isn't about the specific affliction Rather, it's about the God who meets him in the midst of that affliction. And that's what we're going to see in the second point. We're not there yet. But he does want to draw our attention to his own experience of being what burdened beyond strength, despairing of life, as if receiving the sentence of death. You know, for an apostle who's often referred to as an apostle of hope, as an apostle of hope, Here he is, right, utterly hopeless. Here he is destitute. Here he is despairing. Friends, we can all hit that point. Even the strongest amongst us can be brought to the end of ourselves, right? We can be brought, all of us, to our own knees. And the Bible's honest about that. And friends, I think that honesty is refreshing, I think the fact that it speaks so plainly about the experience of the Christian life is actually refreshing and encouraging. It's not saccharine, right? It's not like the Christian scientists who say that such suffering is just an illusion. It's just in your head. The Bible doesn't say that. No, Paul's saying this is real. The pain is real. He's not pretending and he's not sugarcoating reality. He is being plain and brutally honest about it. He wants the Corinthians to know, and he wants us to know that that the fact that we face afflictions like this doesn't necessarily mean that somewhere along the way we erred, 
or somewhere along the way we necessarily took the wrong path, or that somewhere along the way we missed out on God's best for us. Because that's where we often go in our afflictions. And let's be honest, many of us are not accustomed to speaking of our biblical heroes like this. We're not accustomed to thinking of the Christian life like this. Some of us are tempted to think such language, such experiences, speaking as if we're in the throes of death. We think that language has no place in the Christian life. If someone were to come to us speaking like this, right, lamenting and writhing in their own pain, we might even be tempted to rebuke them. Right? It's one of the commandments, isn't it? Thou shalt not despair. Thou shalt not become despondent. Thou shalt not ever be depressed. No, we don't find that in the Bible. Sadly, though, we can reinforce those ideas, even in our own worship sometimes when we gather. How often can we come into our churches all nicely dressed with smiles plastered across our faces, giving answers to questions about how we're doing, and we're not really being honest with anyone along the way. And then we sing lots of happy, clappy tunes, lots of upbeat songs, lots of energy. There's no minor key, no hint of suffering, no silence, no sorrow. We forget that such a high percentage of the Bible's own hymn book is taken up with what? With lamentation, with feeling sad, with feeling unhappy, with feeling tormented, feeling broken. But this often has no place in our own worship such that the deepest agonies of the human soul, if you step into, sadly, many churches, I fear, the deepest agonies of the human soul seem almost alien to us, even embarrassing to us, if not signs of abject failure that somewhere along the way we have missed the Christian life. But friends, those are just consumeristic notions. Those are unbiblical notions. It shouldn't be that way. We don't have to sanitize our sufferings when we come to church on Sunday. Deep affliction comes to Christians. It's inescapable. That doesn't mean, though, that we should glorify in our sufferings. Right? Paul's not doing that. He's speaking of them, but he's not glorifying in them. Nowhere either are we ever encouraged to seek suffering Right? We don't seek suffering, we seek faithfulness. But it is to say that for all of us, affliction and suffering is one course that God will enroll us in. Every one of us in Christ will be enrolled in this course of suffering. And we don't get to opt out. Right? We don't get to substitute that course for something else. It's a class we all must take before we graduate on the school of faith. And that's what we must know. But what must we do? What must we do with that? And that brings us to our second point. See how we're to know something, pain is real, but secondly, we're to do something. Do something, namely, press into God. We're to press into God. Because Paul says this burden and this despair, this death sentence, verse 9 and then right there, the ESV begins a new sentence with the word but. But, Paul says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. And the sense of that's pretty clear. 
But the conjunction is actually more, trans, uh, more plainly translated, not as but, but so that. So that. Paul's actually telling us why all these afflictions have come to him. He's actually giving us the purpose behind some of these afflictions. Paul's saying he's been burdened. He's been drugged to despair. He has received the sentence of death so that for the purpose that he would not rely on himself but learn to rely on God. That's the purpose. And friends, I think right there we've come to the heart of this passage. Right? All those sleepless nights for Paul, all those dark days, all that was given for a reason. Paul's saying, my affliction, it was no accident. This pain has an express purpose from God. And I think his point, and I think you can basically summarize these verses this way, our trials teach us to trust in God. That simple, our trials teach us to trust in God, which is why these trials have been given to Paul. Paul, his own despair and affliction was meant to drive him deeper, to depend deeper in God. And that was the point of it. And friends, that's not an easy lesson for us to learn. We all, what do we do? We all naturally want to rely upon ourselves. We want to trust in ourselves. None of us naturally like giving up control. We want to live by our own strength. We want to live by our own reasoning. And friends, Paul in that way was probably no different from us. I'm sure in many ways more sanctified, but the heart was the same. The heart was the same. He too would have been tempted to place his own confidence in his own powers, in his own abilities, rather than God. Because for all of us, pride runs deep. Pride runs deep. You know, there's a a native tree to the Kalahari Desert in Africa, in Africa rather, and it's called the shepherd's tree. It's called the shepherd's tree. It only grows to maybe 10, 15, 25 feet tall at most. And yet there were some drillers a number of years ago drilling for water, and they discovered the roots of this tree go down as far as 270 feet. 270 feet for a tree of that size. It's astounding. Deepest roots of any tree known in the world. Well, friends, that's, those roots can be a bit like the pride in our own hearts. The root of that pride can run deep, which is often why it takes such deep affliction to uproot those deep roots of pride in us, to tear those long, stubborn, hard, thick roots out of the ground and out of the soil of our own hope, of our own hearts, right? That takes a lot of work, takes a lot of work, that God alone can be trusted, that, that God alone is our source of confidence. Friends, none of us like to admit that we're needy people. We're surrounded by slogans and promises that we in and of ourselves are sufficient. After all, what is the top advertising slogan of all time? Just do it. I heard it over here. Others of you could have said it. Just do it. Nike's famous, just do it. And that message, it's unmistakable, right? You can do it. You have the ability, you have the capacity, you have the potential, you have the power to be whomever you want. 
and accomplish whatever you want. And don't let, if you've seen the commercials, don't let anyone stop you, right? Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And we eat that stuff up. There's a reason why that advertising slogan works so well. And it sells when it comes to sports, when it comes to selling shoes. But friends, when it comes to the big things in life, just do it. While that's seductive, it is also satanic. Because there is so much that we cannot do. We actually aren't the answer to every problem. Most of the time, let's be honest, we are the problem. Putin doesn't need to hear, just do it. The drunk stepping into a car doesn't need to hear, just do it. The person looking longingly at someone who's not their spouse doesn't need to hear, just do it. The child fixated in jealous rage at the toy in the other child's hands doesn't need to hear, just do it. Adam and Eve fixated upon the fruit. They didn't need to hear, just do it. None of them were helped by hearing, just do it which is why we are most like the devil every time we depend upon ourselves. The problem is not that we lack self-confidence. It's that we, in fact, have too much confidence and in all the wrong places. All of our trust is in here and too little is up there with the Lord. And our insufficiency, which afflictions press home to us, our insufficiency is meant to drive us towards God's all-sufficiency. That's what afflictions do. And friend, if Paul needed to learn that lesson, how much more do you think you and I need to learn that lesson? You know, if you've come here this morning and you wouldn't hold yourself out to be a Christian... I hope you see you are not sufficient to save yourself. None of us are sufficient even to save ourselves. Friends, that's why Jesus had to come. That's why Paul's in the midst of this ministry sharing a gospel message that is resulting seemingly in much affliction because we can't save ourselves. None of us can. We don't have that ability. Only one can save, and that's Jesus Christ. And he came for that purpose, to save sinners by living perfectly, dying sacrificially, being raised victoriously so that when we look to him and place our trust to him and abandon all hope in ourselves, we can be saved. We can be reconciled to God by repenting of our sins and trusting in this Jesus, believing in this gospel message that Paul preached to the Corinthians. Friends, that's what you need because you can't save yourself. None of us can save ourselves. And sometimes affliction is the only way that we learn. And sometimes affliction is the only way that God gets our attention. Whether or not we're non-Christians or Christians, that is often the case. right? You might be familiar with the famous words of C.S. Lewis. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain.
pain. Pain is, C.S. Lewis says, God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So why trust in this God? Why depend upon this God? Because this God, Paul says, is the God who what? Who raises the dead. Right? But on God, not rely on ourselves, but on God who what? Raises the dead. Now, Paul could have said this is the God who's created everything, or this is the God who's sovereign over everything, or this is the God who is uniquely worthy of our praise and adoration. And all those things are true, but Paul doesn't say that. He makes God's power not abstract, but very personal, very real. Paul says this is the God who takes that which is dead in us and makes it alive. For notice the tense. didn't say this is the God who raised the dead, simply past tense, though that's true. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the God who raises, present tense, the dead. This is the God who alone is in the business of bringing life out of death and bringing hope out of despair. And of course, yes, it begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it continues today. Paul says right now, right, in millions of different ways, every time a sinner is saved, every time sin is put to death, there is a kind of resurrection that is taking place. There is life being birthed out of death, which is why we must press into this God, and the tougher it gets, the more we have to learn to trust, not in ourselves, but in him. Friends, there are many things that humanity can't do yeah, we might be told our abilities are endless, right? We think of the wonders of modern medicine or the wonders of modern computing. But none of us are God, which is why every day something as simple as waking up and heading out the door without pausing to take in his word or waking up and heading out the door without pausing and bothering to pray in that act, recognize we are, though, acting like God. And without feeding and shepherding our own souls through the word, we begin to think we must be like God, that we don't need these things. And yet at the end of every day, most of us have figured out by the end of a day, you know what? I'm not God. We have two labs. Labs, on the whole, are pleasing dogs. They're compliant dogs. And Wallace, my lab, has been to obedience training twice. He still doesn't obey me. Friends, we're not God. We just can't say things and affect them. We certainly can't raise the dead, but this God can, which is why Paul is called to lean into him. You know, the problem with so many of us, our God is too small. You know, David Wells, a theologian, put it like this. He said, God often rests too inconsequentially upon us. His truth is too distant, his grace too ordinary, his judgments too benign, his gospel too easy, his Christ too common. Paul's like, not this God. Not our God. Friends, how completely satisfying it is to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. Notice verse 10. This is the God who not only delivered Paul from his deadly peril, past tense, 
but he's confident that he will deliver, right? On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You know, it's interesting. We don't learn details of Paul's affliction, and we learn even less details about the nature of his own deliverance. Again, Paul is not wanting the spotlight on him. He's wanting the spotlight on God. Paul is not the point. His afflictions and deliverance aren't the point. God is the point. He is the one who deserves our attention. He is the one on whom we rest our affections because he alone has the power to deliver again. God always comes through for his people. Never once has God failed his people. Friend, do you ever ponder that? Do you ever preach that to yourself? Never once has God failed his people. Did he let Adam and Eve down in the garden? What about Abraham with Isaac? What about Moses in Egypt? What about Joshua before Jericho? What about Job or Ruth or Esther or Daniel or David or Peter or Paul? What about the church? Paul's fretting about the church in Corinth. And yet decades after Paul, that church would continue plugging along in seasons of health and unhealth, yes. Think of the church today. I think Paul could imagine what we're experiencing today all over the world, churches. Friends, God has never once failed his people. Never once. You put God on the line down by one every time he sinks the shots. Every single time he doesn't fail. God doesn't even understand the word fail. And that doesn't mean he's going to remove every affliction from us. So we don't want to take these verses of Paul here and as some kind of divine presumption that God will deliver us whenever we want in the way that we want. Recognize even the most marvelous of deliverances in this life are only partial. We may be spared death, but none of us finally escape death. Which is why Paul is going to point us to the one who has what power over death. That last great enemy is no match for God. And that's what Paul must know. And that's what we need to know in the midst of our despair. And yet so often, what do we do? We fear that God is going to fail us. Which is probably why Paul says, notice we have to what? Fix or set our hope on him. Because that hope is not automatic. It doesn't come naturally to us. It just doesn't magically appear within us. We have to teach ourselves and remind ourselves and actively set ourselves toward that hope. Which is why we study the word. It's why we gather as a body. It's why we pray together. It's why we share testimonies together. It's why we sing, why we sing rather, songs of deliverance. It's why we remind ourselves, as we've even been doing this morning, of the hope that awaits us in heaven. Because here is the best news of all. When it comes to deliverances, God is just getting started. Which brings us to our final point, right? We're to know something, we're to do something. Thirdly, we are to be something. We are to be something, namely, partners in prayer. We're to be partners in prayer. 
Verse 11, you also must help us by prayer. Now the ESV makes that a kind of command, which has the effect of pressing this need for prayer upon us. But you can actually literally read it, we have set our hope on him that he will deliver us again, provided that you join in helping us by your prayers. Or this will happen through the means of your prayers for us. Paul's actually saying his deliverance in some way depends upon, even hinges upon the prayers of these Christians in Corinth. Paul's saying, I have confidence that God will deliver insofar as you continue to join in praying with us. Which can make some of us who delight in God's sovereignty, that can make us squirm. That makes us a little uncomfortable. Is Paul saying that his deliverance is in some way predicated upon their prayers? Yes, I think that's exactly what he's saying. Because God's sovereignty and human responsibility are never in opposition to one another. They complement one another. Prayer is God's ordained means to accomplish his preordained ends. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does that mean we're fatalists? No. Does prayer change things? Yes. You know, you see a close parallel of this in Philippians 1.18. Paul's going to write, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers, Paul's saying, I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. Did you see that right there? God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Their prayers, the work of the Spirit for his deliverance. It's how you can get Romans 9, God's sovereign salvation, along with Romans 10, we got to preach the gospel So the lost can hear. Now, so often, you know, we're awed, right, by by power, by progress. We're often awed by technology, by ingenuity. I'm always reading about, like, the latest in electric vehicles and cars and power and with the power grid, and that makes me maybe a little weird. But, I mean, it's interesting to some degree to all of us, to some of you maybe. Mental furniture, you get it? There it is. We value getting things done. In that kind of a world, prayer seems silly. In that kind of a world, prayer seems almost superstitious. If you remember some of the mass shootings, sadly, in like 2016 and 17, there was a chorus of individuals who were becoming increasingly frustrated with that expression by politicians, our thoughts and prayers are with you. Pundits beginning to mock those statements. And one columnist for the Washington Post wrote, What is prayer but a species of reverent begging? A holy wishing? A desperate request thrown out into the void? Do we actually believe that if we implored with sufficient fervency and all-loving, all-powerful God, that he will intervene in human history? Now you can tell by the, by the nature of the writing. The answer, of course, is no. The very notion to this writer that prayer is efficacious, that is ridiculous. That's ridiculous to so many in the modern mind. 
or to quote Emily Dickinson, faith is a fine invention for gentlemen to see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. Right? Paul, rather the point being, uh, instead the point being during these, during these shootings, what they wanted, they didn't want prayers. Prayers weren't going to accomplish anything. They needed action. And by that, they meant human action, politicians making decisions. And I'm not here to debate the merits of gun laws. That's not the point. The point is that such views on prayer, I think, reflect the thoughts of many, right? Prayer is pointless. It accomplishes nothing meaningful. But friends, if the last 150 years have taught us anything, if just these last two years of COVID have taught us anything, it's that human omnipotence is an illusion, right? You can get the Fauci ouchie two, three times, right? You can still get COVID. Human omnipotence is a grand illusion. There is, in fact, nothing more powerful than prayer. For what is prayer but human impotence? Human impotence casting itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. That's what prayer is. When we, impotent in of ourselves, cast ourselves at the feet of our omnipotent God. And friends, prayer changes things and it changes them eternally, which is why Paul implores them to pray for him and his, his own future. It hinges on it. It's why he's in desperate need of their prayers. And friends, are we in any less need of one another's prayers? We need the prayers of fellow believers. We can't do it alone. We're not meant to do it alone, which means some of us here need to learn to humble ourselves and ask for prayer. Some of us have grown up in a world where to ask for something is a sign of weakness. You do it yourself. If you are a Christian, recognize if you bring that into your spiritual life, it will kill you. It is a stupid way to live, and I mean that in all graciousness. We cannot live that way. If we live by our own strength, we will fall. We need to learn to ask for prayer. And yet others of us need to learn what it means to actually pray for others. I mean, just take a recent inventory of your prayers. What marked them? What were you praying about? Who were you praying for? How often were your needs, your desires, the pressing issues of your day, how often did those define, if not exclusively, the majority of your own prayers? You know, it's easy because it's natural for us. It's our own default. What do we do? We, we pray for us. Paul's saying, yeah, our prayers, they got to go well beyond us. Indeed, the well-being of others, the prosperity of others is dependent upon our own petitions. So when Paul says in verse 11 that many will give thanks on our behalf, it's literally many faces. The, the picture Paul has, and he seems to paint, is that of, of the Corinthian faces and their faces turned up toward God in petition and in prayer for others. So friend, how do you, how do you practically learn not simply to pray for yourself but to pray for others? You know, if you're a member of UBC, we've actually tried to make this really easy for you. And we actually update a prayer guide for you regularly. And it's called your member directory. 
right? This thing right here. Hopefully you have one of these, a member directory. It's got the list of your whole spiritual family in here. But not only this, there are your pastors and elders. There are your deacons. There are your staff. If you get to the back of the list, there are the children in the church. There are the supported workers of the church. There are the homebound that Stephen was praying for. And the pastoral prayer, where did that come from? It came from here, right? All of that is listed right here. And when you don't know how to pray, there are over 100 suggestions of ways to pray for one another. And friend, if we learn anything about Paul's ministry, those on the front lines of ministry and gospel ministry are often those who most need your prayers. So like that supported workers page, get to know that page. Be praying for them. Or you could pray for the Be Steadfast that goes out on the email on, on Sunday nights. If you did that, you could have been praying even this morning for Brian Taylor as he preaches tonight for Terry Irwin as he goes to Generations and as there's the interest meeting this afternoon, for, for high schoolers as they head up to the Ready Conference later this week in Kansas City, for Sarah Beth and for Brandon as they were wed. And you know, if that is just like, yeah, it's too much work, I don't like to check my email, you know what you can always do? You can just show up on a Sunday night service. All the prayers are planned for you. All the work's done. You just gotta show up, you gotta listen, and you have to pray. We need another's prayers. That's how we partner together in gospel work. That's how we succeed together in gospel work. So friends, let me turn to that original question. How do we keep on living in those seasons when that hope for living is gone? Paul says, know something. Pain is real. Right, we're not Stoics who bury and pretend it's not there. Nor do we sensationalize it, right? We're honest about it. We confess it. We understand that doesn't mean that affliction, we've missed God's best for us. But we begin to believe by faith that it actually is part of God's best for us. Then we have to do something. We press into God. We let that affliction turn our attention toward God and not us. That its purpose is to drive us away from our self-sufficiency into his all-sufficiency. And then be something. Partners in prayer praying for one another, for their comfort in the gospel, confident that the one who raised Jesus from the grave, the one who conquered death and that last great enemy, will one day do the same for us. Friends, will that increasingly describe you in those moments of affliction? And will that describe us as we assist one another in that affliction? Let's pray it does. Amen. Oh God, we pray and we pray that as we reflect on your word and what you bring into our lives, oh Lord, we ask that we would, we would filter and we would assess all that transpires through the lens of your word, not through the world, not through the lies the world will tell us, not through the way our hearts can often deceive us, but from the truthfulness of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, friends, it's fitting as, as we respond to this by thinking of that great destination of God's people, that great banqueting table, when all of us who in the midst of despair have that despair give way as we depend and delight in God. Let's stand and sing together.